on November 23, 1953. Radar operators located in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, detected something unusual flying over the St. Mary's River. The operators spotted the unexpected craft within U.S. airspace, and radio operators made attempts to contact the unknown object. However, they received no reply. With no response, the U.S. Air Force Base located at Kinross was instructed to send a fighter to perform a routine intercept on the bogey. First Lieutenant Felix Eugene Moncla was the man selected for the task. Moncla took off from Kinross in the early evening of the 23rd, flying a USAF Scorpion F-89. He was guided by the ground control towards the UFO. Both the bogey and Moncla were registering on radar at this time. However, this wouldn't last for much longer. For nearly 30 minutes, Moncla's F-89 raced over Lake Superior, attempting to get into the correct position for making the air defense intercept. The darkness of the night was beginning to set in, and his task at hand was becoming more and more difficult by the second. Nevertheless, Felix Moncla was a highly regarded pilot, and there was no concern from himself or the ground control crew about the safety of the intercept mission. In fact, the USAF had seen this particular UFO as a good exercise. As Moncla finally approached the craft, the ground operators guided the F-89 down from 25,000 to 8,000 feet, closer to his target and in position to make the intercept. But then, something happened that left the ground control speechless. They watched as the radar showed Moncla's F-89 merge with the bogey, then disappear from their radar screen. Frantically, radio operators attempted to contact Moncla and regain his position, but they could not establish any contact. They watched as the now single craft on radar continued north over the Canadian border before vanishing, while Moncla's F-89 was nowhere to be seen. Almost immediately, another plane was sent out to attempt to make contact with Moncla's craft, or to spot anything else that was strange. However, at night, this proved to be an impossible task. No plane was spotted, and hope was dwindling quickly. Neither Felix Moncla nor the F-89 were ever found. In later testimony to the Accident Review Board, the pilot of the search plane stated that he had heard a radio transmission from Moncla's F-89 40 minutes after it disappeared from radar. However, this could never be explained. The USAF would later attempt to sweep the story under the rug, laying blame on the Royal Canadian Air Force, stating that a Canadian aircraft was flying 30 miles off course in U.S. airspace at the time. However, the RCAF pilot who was flying on November 23rd denied that he was that far off course, and no further evidence he was over U.S. waters could ever be provided. To this day, the disappearance of Felix Eugene Moncla over Lake Superior is one of the most bizarre cases within the Great Lakes Triangle. 
and has still yet to be explained. However, it is just one of thousands of unexplained crashes and disappearances over these waters that have compiled into one of the most ominous freshwater graveyards on Earth. Join us on Into the Portal as we focus on disappeared aircraft, inexplicable crashes, and theories in part two of the Great Lakes Triangle. Hello, and welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we're back. Welcome back, everybody. Part two. That's right. Of the Great Lakes Triangle. Yes. And we got some really intriguing mysteries for you guys tonight. Yeah, Um, we're we're taking a shift away from the water. Yeah, we're going to the air. Indeed. So Mm -hmm. we're focusing on disappeared aircraft and inexplicable air crashes basically airplane airline crashes i mean there's some bizarre accounts and it's all related to the great lakes and that's what we're going to get into yeah so interesting stuff but first i mean we started off research when we first started researching this i guess we came across like one of the most well-known dudes who's written about the great lakes triangle but then we went to buy the book on amazon and it was so expensive but that's jay leland gourlay yeah. but then we had somebody reach out to us on facebook mm-hmm. who said that they found the book for cheap at like a like yard sale cents, man. and it's like this thing on the east coast where everybody's got this book apparently at, or at like, least in michigan or something i, I think that's where she's from is, is she from michigan okay something like that yeah. anyways so Actually, I think I wrote her name down at the end, but you'll get a shout-out at some point here. <laughs> but anyway, so Jay Leland Gourlay, he wrote a book called The Great Lakes Triangle, and he was a specialist on it, right? He was a pilot. He he was a, he was a pilot, and he was a instructor. A researcher. He was a yeah. flight instructor, and, and he, he was a researcher. a little bit uh, not obsessed with The Great Lakes Triangle, but just the idea that it's just incredibly bizarre that like we mentioned in the first part how the route taken by most planes especially planes right because ships are another thing they move a lot slower but with planes most of them go on a route that takes them about 10 minutes to cross the great lakes it's not very long not very far and a lot of times these disappearances occur in great flying conditions yeah that that's one of the inexplicable inexplicable aspects of it. Yeah. Sorry, there's going to be a lot of slurred words here because we're recording on a Saturday, and uh, <laughs> and wow. we got this delicious bottle of Pinot Noir from Kalala. Yeah, it's it's one of our organic wineries, wineries here in town. We're so spoiled with our wine. Yeah, we get to record a podcast and drink Pinot Noir. It's great. Let's not get off topic right away. <laughs> but anyways, yeah. So he he definitely highlights the fact how when you're in a plane. You can literally see the shoreline from both sides. Like, it's not... Right. If, if it's clear skies, obviously. If you're flying above a cloud line, then you're not going to see that. But right. your visibility, like, yeah, you should. And the fact that you should never be out of radio contact. There might be instances, say, and we're going to get into this more, but you might be out of radar for whatever reason because you are over water and participation... Participation? <laughs> participate! <in this> <laughs> Precipitation is uh, a variable with yes. radar accuracy right. and stuff. So, right. Yes. Which is interesting. That's something I didn't know. So yeah. that's cool. So, I mean, 
yeah, Gourley. I mean, he's yeah, like we said, he's the he's the. He's the main dude here, but like the main you, dude. I mean, actually, that we are I don't, not going to talk about. After I, that. You know, it's funny. I actually don't know if he's still alive. I didn't actually pull that up. Oh, who knows? I, I wish. I hope he is because then you'll see how valuable his book is. Very now. true. I mean, it came out in 1977. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not a crazy long I mean, time ago, but it's still was in the 80s or 70s. So. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I wonder. Give Gourle a call. Mm-hmm. Well, tonight we are going to start with a case from the 1950s. It was Northwest Airlines Flight 2501 that happened to vanish on June 23rd, 1950. And it is an unsolved mystery that continues to this day. So over 68 years where this has not been solved. Crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sorry. <laughs> I felt like I was really serious for a second there. You but were. <laughs> it is a serious thing, though, because this represents one of the most deadliest airline accidents in American history. At that time, I know that there has been larger crashes in recent years that we're all familiar with, but at the time, it was very tragic. Right. And just to top it off, it was, it was fine. It was fine weather. Again, like we mentioned, like these have a lot of really strange circumstances when it comes to that. And it was just operating a daily transcontinental flight service that it does between New York and Seattle and when it disappeared. And this was during the evening. Okay. And everyone on board, all 58 souls, ended up perishing. So... Very unfortunate. Yeah. And a lot of this will parallel another case that we're going to cover that it came in 1965. It was uh, Flight 389. Right. But this one here... Uh, it's very interesting because it was in its descent and it was requesting uh, permission to descend further. It was at approximately 3,500 feet over Lake Michigan, uh, 18 miles away from Benton Harbor in Michigan when it vanished from radar screens. And it was requesting its descent to go down to 2,500 feet. So... Yeah. And it just vanished. Yeah, it really did. So this is... Uh, it's it's crazy. Like, they, they dragged the lake. They really? used sonar. Yeah. They dragged it. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense that they would, because it's such a massive it's accident. It's crazy. It is down there. Like, there was a debris. There was parts of the plane. There was human okay. body fragments that were found floating on the surface, but divers were never able to locate where it was. Interesting. Which, actually, after studying the shipwrecks, makes me think that a big part of that would have been all the sediment and stuff, all the mud on the bottom. Very, yeah. That could have been. easily maybe swallowed it up. Totally. Who knows? Even though, like, at the same time, it's sort of, it's less likely that something would be covered up so quickly in a freshwater, in, in, in a lake, as opposed to, like, the ocean where there's more stuff going on at the bottom, you know what I mean? Like, there's not, like, tides and things like that in the same sense that you would have, like, with a yeah. wreck in the bottom of an ocean that would get... You know, yeah. like, would be gone more quickly. A current, perhaps, I would kind of... Yeah, like, there are obviously some, cur- like, currents, I guess, or, like, there's movement, but... It's not like a current, like, you know, like, the East Australia. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, like, yeah. But this 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 crash just totally makes me think of, ex- like, what uh, Jay Leland Gourley said at the beginning of his book and also in the In Search Of, where he basically said that, like, this is one of those ones where there's just a complete lack of evidence. And that's the really bizarre... Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, the lack of evidence. It's... Yeah, the total lack of it or the contradictory evidence. Exactly. And it's just... It's bizarre because a lot of the times you read these accounts and there's no distress signal. There's nothing, like, to indicate that the pilots are in a bizarre state of mind or that they're, like, out of it or incapacitated Mm -hmm. or... I don't know. 
So in that sense, it is very interesting. Like, I did see a couple different accounts of this plane, or, yeah, just the story of the plane wreck and how little or how much evidence was really found. In one account, it was literally one blanket with the airline logo was located yeah in another report it was exactly like more luggage um several blankets bodies found on the shores of south haven where it was supposedly lost and it really gets more and more interesting because you'd think after 68 years there'd be something that you'd be able to detect and it's even like the, the michigan shipwreck research association in conjunction with the national underwater and marine agency which was founded by i just wanted to put this in here <laughs> mystery author clive kussler oh, cool. <laughs> but yeah no all of these um searches and research revealed nothing new really hmm. and it, yeah it's really unfortunate there was this one really interesting account i came across from a jackie eldred and she was from the community of south haven where the search was conducted for the plane and it was interesting because the night of the crash it was according to her account it was stormy which is interesting because we didn't hear anything about um poor weather but she said it was stormy and she was with her i think it was her husband and maybe a few other family members and she swore that she could hear a plane like going like circling around the house kind of thing and like louder and louder and lower right like it would get lower and yeah. lower and she heard a huge bang and her husband told her she was just imagining things but she was totally terrified and i think she was more in tune with what was going on because she actually did witness a plane crash in her family's farm when she was a kid and so it kind of traumatized her and she was very sure that this was the exact she same knew thing. the sound yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And and she also stated that her family found body parts on the beach the next day, so... That would pretty much ruin your day at the beach. Yeah, I probably would never want to swim at that no, beach probably ever not. again. Yeah. <laughs> no. So this but. was one of the earlier ones, obviously, 1950, where, yeah, just, just disappears from radar... An inexplicable crash. Like, you know, yeah, no special circumstances. And the first thought is obviously, like, we're going to get into theories at the end, but I mean, like, the first thought is obviously, like it says in this this quote from uh, from Jackie, like, poor weather. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it was stormy. Mm -hmm. But this is 1950, and it was a prop liner plane. Like, these planes weren't... I mean, not not to say that they wouldn't go out in bad weather, but if there was, Mm -hmm. like, a crazy storm over Lake Michigan, they probably were going to delay that flight. You know what I mean? Like... Bad weather can crop can come up quickly over the Great Lakes, just like it can yeah. in like the Bermuda Bermuda Triangle or like these other places over that are similar over any body water. Yeah. yeah, totally. But at the same time, it's like no no distress call, loss of radar, like all these things are like almost like parts that don't necessarily just match up with bad weather. You know what I mean? It's just can't be chalked up to rain and wind. What is it then? <laughs> we will get into it, but. We want to stay on track. So, yeah. Do we? You're really trying to rein me in today. I know. I know what I mean. You want someone to be or something or what? What? What (laughs) Just kidding. I didn't even really catch that. (laughs) (laughs) I said you got somewhere to be? (laughs) (laughs) No. Well, maybe. (laughs) No, I don't have a life. (laughs) This is my favorite thing to do on a Saturday. This is is it. Um, So only three years later, we have our next... Our next... uh, yeah. inexplicable event yeah really so this this one to me is the most interesting like this one's my favorite well, i don't want it's your pet 
story. I hate calling things like this my favorite, though, because it's like tragic events. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it is really fascinating. So 1953, this is, when did this happen exactly? November. But 1953, there is a... Oh, that's weird, actually. I just realized it was the 23rd of November. And then for this one, it was June 23rd. Oh. 23. Number 23. Uh-oh. Oh, my God. It's a conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Continue. No, no worries. <laughs> so, Felix Eugene Moncla Jr. He's a pilot, first lieutenant. He was born on October 21st, 1926. And when you go to, like, the Wikipedia looking at him, it's like, it says that he's, you know, October 26th to 1953 when he passed away. But they never found uh Eugene, presumed dead. Felix Eugene. Mm-hmm. So presumed dead. He might, he could still be alive in an, another dimension somewhere. 26? No. Freaking old man. <laughs> no, I mean like if he got teleported oh. to another dimension. <laughs> he could still be 26. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, it was a uh, United, Air, uh, United States Air Force pilot, and he basically just vanished doing, performing a routine intercept over Lake Superior in 1953. So it was November 23rd. And radio operators at the Sault Ste. Marie uh, location in Michigan saw something unexpected, basically, like, okay, wait, correct me if I'm wrong. So this was like, they picked up something on radar that wasn't supposed to be there over St. Mary's River. Mm-hmm. So near so Lake Superior and Lake Huron, right? Right right on the border of the U.S. and Canada. So what, what makes up this border? So yeah, the river makes up the border, St. Mary's mm-hmm. River, yeah. between Ontario and Michigan. And the radar operators identified an unusual target. They It was in restricted airspace, and they didn't know exactly what it was, and they so they it's routine to send an intercept, obviously, right? I think they were... Sorry, just to no, go jump for, can, in there. No, please do. Uh, I think they were trying to take advantage of it, too, because, uh, yeah, they did try and reach out to communicate, didn't get anything, right. I don't think. And so they were like, oh, let's take advantage of this and kind of do, um, like, a practice sort of Practice intercept, absolutely. Kind of yeah. Yeah, so where am I here? Okay. So the U.S. Air Force, so it was an F-89C uh, fighter jet that Monclo mm-hmm. was uh, piloting that day. Mm-hmm. So it was sent out to intercept this bogey, as it's called. I love that term because at that point <laughs> yeah. it's a bogey, right? It's a UFO because you can't get contact from it. Just you don't, you don't know, who, you don't know who it belongs to, so you don't know what's going on. So it's a UFO. So Moncla gets sent out. He's dispatched from uh, Kinross Air Force Base near Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, to intercept and obviously identify the aircraft that had appeared on radar. So. For 30 minutes, the jet raced out over Lake Superior under the guidance of the radar operators. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, on the ground, the radar operators could basically see two blips on the radar screen. One for the Scorpion, which was the name of Moncla's plane, obviously. Yeah, that's the model, yeah. That was the model of the plane, the Scorpion. Man, what a badass name, eh? Boom, yeah. And then obviously the other uh, target on the radar was was the unknown, was the bogey. Mm -hmm. So the operator directed Moncla towards the object. Now, did you get any info on the visibility that day? It was a little bit, it was limited visibility, right? It was dark, it was night. I'm not sure how Was it? It was the middle of the night? Okay. So, no, it was, it was evening. It was like, evening. I think it was like 2,100 hours. That's what I thought. Okay, yeah. So, but he, he was having a tough time, so the, the operator on the ground was guiding him. And he, bringing them down from 25,000 feet to 8,000 feet, the C-89 Scorpion was flying at 500 miles an hour as they closed in on the unidentified blip, 
when suddenly the jet merged with that of the bogey it was chasing. Mm-hmm. So the so the IFF basically, you know, signal from the jet was lost. The like Monclo was off radar. Yeah. The radar blip from the F eighty nine never reappeared. No. And it did. Did it did it sort of briefly reappear? Was that it, how it went? Sorry, the the blip like the unknown? The unknown blip reappeared. Yeah, Monclo I saw. The, the, the 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 two blips. Like the Monclo was gone. Monclo was gone and then the yeah, apparently oh actually sorry, maybe it did disappear. I saw an account where it did like it it kinda cut out and then okay. it it was sighted later on and it was just kinda continuing its track. So it was just partially on the radar at the at the point yeah. when Monclo went. It was off heading of north it. over Canada. Apparently, <laughs> interesting. Mm-hmm. So never identified. Well, maybe potentially, but very conflicting accounts. Right. <laughs> Do you want to just pick it up from here? Like, uh, yeah, no, well, you're doing a pretty good job. <laughs> Where am I, I after? So. The pilot of another F-89 sent on the search stated in testimony later to the accident board that he believed that he had heard a brief radio transmission from Felix Moncla about mm-hmm. 40 minutes after the plane had disappeared from radar. Interesting. Yeah, he was sent to after him, eh? Um, like a recovery effort. Now, that's a, that is a, that's a good chunk of time. You know what I mean? Like, that isn't just like, oh, I heard a, I heard a transmission two minutes after it disappeared from radar or something like that. It's just, just bizarre. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's our word of the day. <laughs> bizarre word, word of the day. Bizarre. Yep. Um, so 45 minutes later, he's got something on his uh, radio, but it's, he can't really make anything out, out of it. There's not really a, it isn't Moncla like calling for help or anything. That's the other thing too. There was no distress from Moncla. Never. Yeah. That's no distress calls. Part. No Nothing. There was there was no indication that he was in trouble. There was no. I mean, <laughs> that's Amber taking out a DVD. <laughs> in case that picked up on the audio. <laughs> it's a great movie. Just so everyone. Knows. It was just humming in the computer there, so we it could was, take it out. Yeah, Murder on the Orient Express. That's right. Yep. <laughs> so, yes. So basically, so, the yeah. story is though that <laughs> Felix is gone. Plane disappears. He gone. <laughs> he gone. Normally it's she gone. This time is he gone. He gone. And it's really sad. Last time. <laughs> it, it's a sad story though. Like it was kind of a. I mean, he he had just recently been married, I believe, and he was you know he was a young guy and yeah. a good guy. I mean, people seemed to really like him. Like from from the accounts of other pilots and stuff, like he was a likable dude. Okay, the thing about this case too is that. Yeah, like you're saying, like, yeah, he's awesome And dude. competent. Confident, competent, competent, and not yes. the type for this no, to happen no, to. No, 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 So it just makes it that much weirder. And when you start to go down the rabbit hole of this one, yeah, <laughs> you go <laughs> down the rabbit hole. Yes. Because there's definitely some conspiracy type of things. Um, there is some people that believe that the Air Force is uh, covering up a possible UFO story. I've definitely seen some parallels to the way that Philip J. Corso uh, describes the way Roswell was handled in his book, The Day After Roswell, that right. we got from our friend over Our Strange Skies. Yes. Hey, Rob. Hey, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, there's definitely some cover-up 
of the media and just outright denial from the Air Force, they basically, there was kind of a back and forth um, and a lot of discrepancies between the Canadian and the American accounts. Right. And yeah, there is this hypothesis that perhaps the UFO or the bogey, as it's described, was actually a um, C... Or sorry, an RCAF, so the Royal Canadian Air Force C-47 jet. Right. That was out on a routine whatever. And, you know, just, just bip it around. Yeah, routine. But, but in its own airspace. So. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> okay. So, no. So this is just weird because the Canadian government actually denies involvement. And they deny that any of their jets were in the area at the time of the disappearance. And. What actually comes about is this idea that they would actually have had to have violated U.S. airspace to be in the area that they that this bogey was. Right. Because it started off on the border, and I think it actually did meander into the U.S. The reason they thought it was, or well, they thought it could have been an RCAF C-47, but it, that that plane was 30 miles off course, mm-hmm. right? So, like, it was, like, they thought that, oh, it is the RCAF C-47, but... It's just on our side of the border, which then it wouldn't be in its airspace. It yeah. would be in, would you know, be international or in, in U.S. airspace. In US, yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's very interesting. I did come across a account from the pilot of this supposed Dakota C-47 jet from the Canadian side of the border. And it was piloted by a Gerald Fosberg. Because there was a flight, obviously, just to be clear. There was a flight yes. on the Canadian side. Yes. 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 And this guy, it was very routine for him. And I actually have a public statement that he made well after the investigation and everything. But this is a quote from him. He says, quote, I remember the flight reasonably well, and I just checked my logbooks to confirm the date. It was a late flight. Or sorry, it was a night flight. We were probably at 7,000 or 9,000 feet over a solid cloud deck below an absolutely clear sky above. Somewhere near Salt St. Marie, north of Kinrose, hmm. I think near a ground station. I can't remember whether it was American or Canadian. Uh, asked us if we had seen another aircraft's lights in our area. I do think I recall them saying at the time that a USAF, so a U.S. Air Force, had scrambled an interceptor and that they had lost contact with it. We replied that we had not seen anything. A few days later, I, re- I received a phone call from someone at Kinross who was carrying out an investigation on a missing aircraft. I could only tell them that we had seen nothing, and that was the last I heard of the incident. <sighs> and he claims, yeah, like you said, he was never 30 miles off course. No. And that he was never told that a missing aircraft had been trying to intercept him. You think he would be easy to sort of uh, you would communicate know. with? You would know. Right? If an, if and an you aircraft's would, you would trying know. to intercept Exactly, because you would see it on your screen, too, on yes. your radar. You would see it. Anyways. Yes. So he literally said he he said in an interview that he had never been in his entire career and that even remotely that close that far that far off course. Like that was Mm -hmm. unheard of to even suggest that he would be that far off course. It was like offensive to him. He was offended that people (laughs) like said you were third. Like, was that you? He was like he was legit like upset Mm. when people suggested that. Yeah, because that just he's like you're a flying veteran. Yeah, Mm -hmm. like you're however many years flying vet, right? Like. Yeah, hmm. not likely. And it's kind of unfortunate, too, because there is no record of communications between Moncla's Scorpion and this, this C-47. So there's no way to confirm whether he established contact. And there's no way to confirm whether... <clears throat> like, there there is no record of communication between the Canadian jet and no. ground... Like, you know, like radar or right. whatever. Anything. Which brings into questions, you know, issues of, t- of, of, of the equipment. Like, but why? Why? 
right? Yeah. So it, it, that gets even more interesting, obviously, because you get the idea that there was maybe some intentional errors provided in the report of the ground control intercept and all this kind of like uh, just intentionally I, put in there by the U.S. Air Force. I don't want to give too much credit to some of these ideas, but they are ideas. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but they are ideas, (laughs) but he, I don't know. There was this guy, Gord Heath, and he is from the UFO BC society or whatever. And he kind of thinks that it's possible that these mistakes were deliberately introduced into the report by U.S. Air Force authorities to create ambiguity, which, again, reminds me of um, the claims made by the Roswell guy from the Air Force. And Yeah. Yeah. It's but just, ambiguity of just, like, that they screwed up? Like, some, that somebody just royally screwed up? Like, ambiguity of what? Because, like, they took... Like, the story goes... No, 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 sorry. No, ambiguity in the coordinates and things, because it didn't really... Like, when you take the coordinates and information and plot them on a map, it didn't really make sense to him, is what he was trying to say. Oh, okay. And he says that, basically, information is inaccurate or incomplete, which, again, mirrors another another case we'll talk about in Mm -hmm. a second. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it just... It could be intentional, it could be accidental, it could be... I don't know. And it just, it, it, it's one of those things that's just no one, no one really can scrounge up the answers. Can <laughs> scrounge up. So, well, what what are the potentials then? I mean, you've got, you've got, we've got some stuff written down here. Could but it be a UFO? <laughs> that's, the, that's, the, that's the biggest uh, paranormal side of this particular story is obviously the, the aspect of UFOs. Yeah. Uh, I mean... UFO is really just unidentified. It's not necessarily extraterrestrial yeah. or ultra-terrestrial or UFO? whatever. Exactly. Okay. So let's go through these one by one. Sure. Maybe. So the most plausible, but not really, is the idea, because <laughs> there's no, no, nothing to suggest this, is the idea that the plane went down due to mechanical malfunctions. And there's no evidence at all to back that up. Uh, nope. It's just one of those things that you kind of have to throw out there. It's like, oh, maybe. I don't know. There's another one that's equally as kind of uh, not credible to me, which is the idea that he had um, vertigo. Right. I don't, I don't know. I Apparently, like, there's some people that will hype up the fact that he had it in his life previously, but for you to be in a plane and literally just, like, really, though? Like, that just seems yeah, really... Yeah, no, I don't think so. I mean, like, I sure, it's the early 50s and stuff, but they still, I mean, the training was intense, and, like, this guy was a, he was a... He was a he was a pilot in his late 20s. He had flown many, many times. It was a fairly routine procedure it wasn't extreme weather like yeah. vertigo from what and you would think you you obviously have to pass like physicals you have to pass mental yes. like you, you if you're not at capacity no. you're not flying he was a young fit man yeah so for him to get vertigo in, in a situation that is not a, a, a special flying situation mm-hmm. would be pretty bizarre that'd be more out of the ordinary than yeah many other things and there's the other idea that maybe perhaps the Royal Canadian Air Force jet brought down the plane. Oh, there's a conspiracy, eh? That kind of, yeah. But then it's like, that is, if that was, if that were to be true, that would be, one, the dumbest decision ever by a Royal, by an RCAF pilot ever for just to, for no reason, shoot down an an aircraft that's in airspace that's not yours, if it were on the other side. And you would think there'd be a record of those communications unless it was such a conspiracy thing. 
Wait. Did these planes even have that capability? Like, did the did the uh, RCAF C forty seven was it a trans- anti aircraft missiles or you, something? You, right? I they're guess. Jet, they're fighter jets. This is the nineteen fifties though. Jets. It's they're the nineteen fifties though. But they're not going to send out something to intercept a UFO or a bogey that's not equipped with something to freaking shoot. Yeah, but it that's down. the F eighteen, not the RCAF. Oh, well, it was another fighter jet. It wasn't... I guess. So I'm just saying, I don't know that much about planes, so if there's any listeners out there okay. that are aficionados and plane please. people, please hit us up, because Into I'm just thinking it's mailbox like... At I obviously know that there was, like, you know, airplane warfare, like, became... That was... It was important in the, in during World War II, obviously. That's mm-hmm. when it became a big deal, but whether or not it had heat-seeking rockets. <laughs> I don't no, know. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if yeah. they had the ability to... If he would have had the ability to take down Moncla, I don't know. Another idea is that maybe perhaps it wasn't the the Royal Canadian Air Force jet that brought it down, but maybe, this is even more bizarre to me personally, but maybe the F-89 had intercepted the, the C-47 and then randomly just disappeared. <laughs> like, you know, like that's just, that's weird <laughs> to me too. The, the K, K. Okay. 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 The way it's described is these two merged. The two targets merged on the radar. Yeah. And then one disappeared, and then that was it. So to me, that is bizarre because obviously the plane went down at the moment of contact with the other object or close to it. It's not as if, uh, or unless it's even more like, you know, like they just lost. It was clear weather, though. It wasn't a bad day. It wasn't a bad day. But that's just it, though. Did it go down? Like, did it? Or did it just nothing's disappear? been found. No. This is one of those ones where no plane was found. No. No body was found. No. No parts of the wreckage were found. Mm-hmm. And if you're going by just radar, you know, info, there was two objects on the radar screen. So there's no issues with the equipment at this point. Because yeah. here's the aspects with the Great Lakes we're dealing with. You've got planes that are flying that... Don't that you know get into trouble, but don't send signals. So you're mm-hmm. thinking, okay, the the equipment's malfunctioning. They're th- going through some sort of weird territory where either from the ground position or the position in the air, they can't communicate because equipment's not working. Then there's the equipment's working just fine, but nobody uses it when they should. <laughs> yeah, no one. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Or, uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, just all of the above, <laughs> I guess. I mean, like in in this case, it was both. In this case, it was both. Because yes. he didn't radio. He didn't send distress. No. They were showing up on radar, so there was no issues with the ground radar. Mm-hmm. And they, there was there was no malfunctioning equipment, presumably, from that at that stage of the before he disappeared. Yeah. Then you've got one one thing on the radar, no plane, and that's it. Just gone. Gone. And then you see, okay, the weirdest part, too, is the fact that there was the blip seen tracing northward across Canada and then just disappearing into the north. Yeah. That's bizarre. UFO, Canadian aliens. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Don't, don't make them Canadian. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it, it's just, it's, yeah, it's very strange. It's, if you, if you believe in UFOs and you believe in abductions... If you believe this to be maybe some sort of type of like, you know, 1950s like abduction where they're like, hey, there's a plane there. We're curious what that plane's like. Let's just scoop it up while we're flying by. And the pilot's just a bonus or something like, I don't know. But it almost seems like (laughs) (laughs) it seems like that would be a cumbersome way to like do your research if you're an extraterrestrial. 
Then again, I don't know. I mean, that's just working through my humanist lens, right? So it's like... Well, you know what? But if you're just scooping up a flying jet, I don't know. That seems like harder than... Well, you could think of it as the world is just one big hamster cage. And we're all a bunch of hamsters in the cage. You just reach and in. And you just reach in and grab one out. And do your experiments on it. And then maybe you put it back or maybe it dies and you never bring it back. <laughs> That's kinda, that is grim. Yeah. That's grim. Well, now oh, hamsters are so cute. <laughs> so, but then did you want to mention that? What was that guy's name who claimed to possibly be... Felix Monkla. Oh, Lord. Oh, no. Are we going to get We'll that? briefly mention well, it. I don't want to give too much. I already did mention him. That was why I, I said they were ideas, but they're ideas. Yes. Oh, <laughs> that was him. It was Heath. Go- Gord Heath, yeah. Gordy. Gord. Yeah, this guy's three sheets to the wind. Well. I mean, he seems like a nice guy. <laughs> but he's like. <laughs> he's just... And that's a nautical joke because the part one is all about shipwrecks. So that's my. <laughs> That's my nautical joke. No, he seems he, like a nice guy. Yeah, no, he has some some interesting ideas. He he kind of got started on his whole journey when he happened to see a UFO when he was in his youth, and then he ended up having some strange dreams that he ends up connecting to the pilot Moncla, right. and he basically thinks that he was Moncla in a previous well, life because yeah. he was born nine right months, the same day or same week as Moncla's death, or and not in exactly nine months after the crash. Oh, was that it? Yeah, in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Oh. So okay. he he believes he, he uh, like, very loosely, he doesn't outright claim this, but he basically thinks he's a reincarnation of Felix Moncla or that he has some sort of psychic connection, psychic connection yeah. to the now deceased or in another dimension Felix Moncla. He basically described a dream where he is a young boy that gets taken to a hilltop mm-hmm. looking over the lake and he sees the plane of Felix Moncla flying into a UFO and being taken into a UFO, and that's his vision. There you go. So as what? far as this guy's concerned, that's what happened. Hey, <laughs> so me. that actually reminds me of some of the UFO accounts I've been reading about in preparation for other things, but there's been accounts from pilots where they see these UFOs flying, and this is Canadian accounts in Manitoba, but... They, they see these these UFOs flying straight at them at irregular, like, you know, like they're not on, what is it, non-ballistic motion right. mass or whatever. Yeah. And and then they literally, they're flying right at them, and then they turn, they stop in midair and go back the same way. They don't turn around. They just no, go just the opposite way. Yeah. And what they do is they, they these little poofs of clouds kind of, dis- like, appeared, and then they'll disappear into the cloud. So. Like a portal. Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> but yeah, no. It, so that in, it maybe could be related. <laughs> hey, and for all yeah. Avengers fans out there, I mean, no spoilers for Infinity War, obviously. Oh, but they're um, already all over the place. Well, it? true, but that reminds me of like of uh, Cumberbatch. I mean, what's yeah. his character? Is it Doctor Strange, right? Yeah. Like where he just like conjures so up a portal cool. and then you go through it. Or it's like, I don't know, maybe maybe there are uh, beans out there with that technology. And for some reason, they just like, they dig the Great Lakes. They just like, like it around there. I mean, it's a good vacation spot. Yeah. I don't know. Not Kevin O'Leary's got a place out there, I think. <laughs> well, I mean, out there. There's five of them and they're the biggest. I mean, I, I don't know where to say. <laughs> out there somewhere knock on some doors you'll find oh, Lord. yeah so just i don't know we can wrap this up by saying it's it's an enigma this one because like the canadian government they deny any role in this yeah they they just they're they're set like they don't even have like any well 
I don't know if they would have this to this day, but I read that they don't have any record of communication between it, like attempts of communication again between that plane, the Canadian jet, and air ground control, that type of thing on the U.S. side. Yeah. It's just a lot of things that just don't add up. No. And the pilot's outright denial, that type of thing, that... He, well, and, and when I, you know, like, I watched a, 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 a you know, a video interview of, of this guy, and he... Did you? Yeah, yeah, like, and he, he was, like I said, he was offended that people would suggest that he was that far off course, and he did not seem like the type of guy to... I mean, this is the 1950s, like, the U.S. and Canada are friends, and this is the 1950s, this is right after World War II, where we're really good friends, and we're, like, you know, and, and especially being so close to the border, and the... You know, the United States Air Force and the RCAF, they worked together. They would do route, they would do like training missions and stuff together, like on the border over the Great Lakes and stuff like that. It is out of the realm of possibility for RCAF to have shot down that plane or to have any any hand in the disappearance of that's the, I'm yeah. stating that as a fact. That is not a thing at all. You're going with yeah. that. Alright. Well anyway, on that note. Are we? We're ready for a break for another awesome promo. We love these guys. Oh my gosh. This is, yeah. This is such an awesome show. One of our faves to put on, especially when we're doing research, we can just like have them on in, in the office. Okay, well, and every time Amber puts it on, like I, I have this like weird dance that I do to the intro. I can't help it, but I just have the same sort oh, of like great. fist pumping like motion. I don't it's even like know. It's like you're running like, through a video game like with monsters chasing yes. after you. I'm like Mario mm-hmm. jumping over the, the, the ve- giant Venus flytraps or something. I'm I was like listening a, to one of their latest episodes and they had this awesome round table where they were talking about one of their like one of the hosts's personal experiences with the paranormal or close encounters and it's actually oh my gosh it's so Did entertaining we even say what it's called no we haven't yet <laughs> we're saving this okay. for the end we're gonna hype it up but anyways uh <laughs> you caught me off sorry but what i was gonna say was they had an awesome new theme song that was all power metal oh. <laughs> it was so hilarious oh. so i just wanted to mention that but yeah it is none other than kryptonaut podcast yes they're a huge fan so go check them out and listen to this awesome promo here we go Welcome to the Kryptonaut Podcast, hosted by Mark Storrs, Chris Carnicelli, Rob Morphy. Join us weekly as we explore everything from aliens, cryptozoology, the occult, ghosts, paranormal phenomenon, ufology, and unsolved mysteries, all while keeping a close eye on our reptilian overlords that dwell in the flat, hollow, robot-infested Earth. This is the Kryptonaut Podcast. We are available at CryptonautPodcast.com. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. And we're back. Mm-hmm. So make sure you guys go check out Kryptonaut Podcast. And yeah, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to those guys. So we're moving on now. We are bumping up to the mid-1960s. So yep. 1965. This is, I mean, I guess arguably one of the most well-known ones and probably, I mean, maybe not the most tragic, but definitely, I mean, not a pleasant event. Mm -mm. So 1965, United Airlines Flight 389. Here's how the story goes. Normal flying conditions that day. It was August 16th, 1965, when the plane was prepping to leave from LaGuardia Airport in New York en route to Chicago. So super routine flight, not a crazy long distance, and... uh, a fairly predictable flight path and all that kind of stuff. 
Surprisingly, there were no remedial, com- re- remedial, no radio communications that were interrupted throughout the duration of the flight. So unlike other disappeared planes and stuff, there was seemingly no issues with the radar or radio. The pilot and co-pilot were present on the flight recorder the entire time en route to Chicago, and it was in optimal conditions. There was no intense weather conditions reported. There wasn't stormy weather. It wasn't, it wasn't a bad day for flying. So the plane went to a level of 6,000 feet in preparation for their landing in Chicago, and the pilot's voices are heard on the flight recorder as they were examining the altimeter as they were heading in to, uh, for their land, prepping for their landing. And we looked up altimeter. What's the altimeter, babe? It has to do with the altitude. That makes sense. <laughs> Measuring the altitude. Profound. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so they went to 6,000, they were checking their altimeter, and they were at the right altitude. Now, it was basically right up until the last second, right before this plane plummeted into Lake Michigan, they were still just checking their altimeter, checking their instruments, as if everything was normal. Like, they were just doing a routine reading, and then straight into Lake Michigan. So, yeah, that's that's the story of uh, United, <clears throat> excuse me, United Airlines Flight 389. The, I mean, got anything? Yeah, well, that's the story. I did uncover the aircraft accident report from the National Transportation Safety Board. So there wasn't anything unusual reported about the crew or the plane when it departed either their behavior or appearance. Um, There was repeated mentions of how all communications were immediately acknowledged by the crew or the plane. And in the descent maneuver, again, nothing unusual. Hmm. So I did have one mention um, that did refer to the altimeter, where it basically was saying that the, well, yeah, the landing system people, whatever, I guess that would be the same, the ground control. Yeah. Um, they actually, they were reading the setting for the altimeter and the pilot supposedly read back the setting incorrectly and the controller corrected him. But again, yeah, the pilot did repeat it correctly. Okay. And that was actually the last communication received from the flight that ended at 2120.03. Bizarre. Because, yeah, like, and okay, so that's, this is a... This is an interesting one because it's like they're, the pilot is having one reading on their end and then there's a reading on the end of ground control and he's, he's, he's communicating that it's the same. So this isn't a direct equipment malfunction or a, you know, just like, I don't know, things seem to be working. Like things seem to be working just fine. Seemingly. Yeah, no, it's a very bizarre case. Um... I actually did reach out to someone who was a little bit more qualified to handle this type of stuff. Right. Because there was a technical, a lot of technical jargon that I wasn't familiar with in this report. Yes, we were lucky to. Yes. Yeah. And we actually just recently were in contact with him, luckily. And it's physicist Chris is his Twitter handle. I'd highly recommend you check out his show. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's a Dash of Science podcast. He actually has um, a Bachelor of Science in Physics and a Master's in Space Studies. Very cool. So, yeah, I did get him to analyze the accident report for us. So thank you, Chris. Yeah, thanks, man. We yes. really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And after taking a brief look at it, there was 
There was a specific paragraph that I wanted him to just sort of review for me because it was talking about how the Air Defense Command radar system and this other SAGE computer, which is an acronym, which I actually can't remember the acronym. Oh, what was it? I can't remember It was either. something to do with ground something. Yeah, but it's anyways, not that important. It's okay. Yeah, whatever. Uh, look it up if you're really interested. <laughs> but, yeah, so it was monitoring and recording these altitude tracks. And so a track would be a projected flight path for a aircraft, which I wasn't actually really familiar with either, so I did want him to clarify that for me. And this data uh, actually showed two tracks in the area of concern at the time that the plane was approaching O'Hare Airport. And they actually... They describe it as two tracks, which sound is kind of misleading at first because it makes you think that there's two objects flying in conjunction with each other when actually what they meant was that they picked up one track and they lost it and they picked up a second one, which actually probably means that it was the same object. It just right, okay. was lost because that does tend to happen over bodies of water just due to precipitation levels like we mentioned before. Right, okay. So, yeah, Chris was saying like he he kind of interpreted it for me and this is kind of a quote from him he said essentially what they are saying is that they are monitoring a certain airspace airspace sorry at a certain time and at that time there were two objects in that airspace it looks like they dropped the first track which means they were no longer receiving data from it not that it wasn't there about a minute before they picked up the second track so hmm. yes and he was actually slightly confused because he said that whoever um, transcribed this report onto the wiki page, only gave latitude and longitude in degrees and minutes, which isn't the standard. The standard is the format of degree, minute, second. And without seconds, the precision mm. of those locations are lost, like they're rough. They're within yeah, a mile. you can't. Yeah, okay. Within, and that's a decent, that's a, yeah. that's a pretty wide range, really. Yeah. Miles and- so he. He was of the mind that it was pretty likely the same object that they lost and then reacquired. And like he said, again, he reiterated that it isn't abnormal over bodies of water and that these bodies of water can scatter the radio frequencies, which is one form of what we call attenuation, this quote from him, okay. which is basically signal loss. Right. So he said, I made a best guess of the flight path, assuming it was one ob- or sorry, I made a best guess of the flight path, assuming it was one object. So keep in mind the precision is any mile, uh, one mile in any direction, and the altitude points are estimated as they are correlated with time instead of with location. End quote. Gotcha. So yeah, again, like it's very interesting. Like I wonder if that was missing in the original report as well, because to me that seems not very legitimate. And we are going to include this accident report for our readers, our readers, <laughs> listeners. our listeners. And, we have readers too. We have a lovely blog. <laughs> well, you can read our resources. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we will keep track of that. And we actually will provide the plots that Chris provided for us. Yeah. Yeah, he actually sent that over to me. So that was really helpful. And very it actually helpful. did show a very, uh, a very smooth trajectory, uh, straight line flight path, yeah. which would correspond to and he did again keep in mind this is a rough estimate within a mile in any direction so you could make the assumption that like i i just want to play devil's advocate here for like the paranormal and be like well there could be some sort of um convergence of a ufo and this flight and it could yeah. be something a little bit weirder. It could be similar to what we discussed with Moncla. Right, where there's the multiple on the radar and then... Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, again, very bizarre. But 
yeah, I was really appreciative. So thank you, Chris, for doing that yeah, for us. Um, we will definitely reach out to you again Absolutely. in the future with any radar questions or anything else related to space, perhaps. Yeah. I think he works for NASA or something. <laughs> <laughs> it was very cool, though. Yeah, yeah, we're making some some great... I, I was listening to a show, and it's great. It like, is awesome. It's a very, very rational, logical approach to right. really cool things. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's a huge range, really. Like, I was listening to one about, like, um, bees and stuff. Well, not bees, but he mentioned bees. Anyway. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> but well, yeah, we no. need that on our show, right? And we've, 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 we got a little bit of that with our uh, Ed Leeds Scalman uh, Rockgate episode and stuff. But it's really nice to meet guys like um, like Chris here and mm-hmm. well, two Chris's in our lives now, I guess, with uh, two scientists. Got so many Chris's. No, that was really interesting information. Yeah, like, okay, this episode is called Bees, Aliens, and the Evolution of Intelligence, which was really cool That's because, cool. He, yeah, he was talking to a, um, it was some chick that had a PhD in, like, bee science. <laughs> bee science. You keep she, emphasizing bee. Like. <laughs> but she was talking about how, like, you can use the model of bees to sort of, like, maybe create a theoretical model of alien intelligence and intelligence versus, oh my gosh, what was it? Not knowledge. It was, like, it was different oh, ways okay. of... okay, yeah, I know what you mean, though. Like, they just... Like, a way of knowing, like, another way yeah. of, like... Uh, they just... Mm-hmm. They're advanced, and they're sophisticated, yet simple. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, anyway. anyway. I, yeah. <laughs> Here we are after. I had yeah. just dived into that episode. I didn't actually get to the end of it yet. Okay, so. okay. So, <laughs> well, anyway, yeah. I'll go no, back I, to you next week with the conclusion. That's right. <laughs> so, but back to, to, this, to this story with Flight 389, though, just to kind of cap it off. Um, I mean, what do you think about this particular one? In terms of... Uh, well, it's just bizarre, again. It's just... There's no reason for it. No, and I mean, there isn't. There was good weather. It was... For... Uh, like... As far as, like, the actual data... Because, like, they did recover the plane. Yes, they did. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> no, they like recovered it, and they weren't able to determine. Like, it's just, it's just, it's just bizarre. Because like you, you hear about flights like the MH three seventy one, and they haven't found that one. And that is a huge space. This yeah. is a freaking lake. <laughs> like, I know it's a big lake, and you can see it from space, but yeah, it's a lake, man. No, like, it's, it's you can cross limited. it in ten minutes. Yeah, flying. And you'll see in those photos, if you go look at our resources, like, the flight path was on, it was on the lower end of the lake, too. It was just, like, the little U-shaped right. bowl thing, so it shouldn't be that. And, like, yeah, no distress calls. No. Just just, just them on the thing checking their altimeter. Yeah. Which is, like, okay, and here's the thing. Picture this in your minds, listeners, okay? You are a co-pilot or whatever. You're flying on the wall in that cockpit. There's a plane, like, from their perspective... Like, this is what I think. Their perspectives were just... They were completely not of the right mind because they were crossing through some sort of zone that messed with their heads. Mm -hmm. Because they're tapping on their altimeter saying, I wonder what our readings are. Like, is this correct? Mm -hmm. And you're you're an inch from smashing into into Lake Michigan without without a distress signal without anything yeah. there's no rationale for no, that and no then big they storms no just clouds and then they recover the black box mm-hmm. eventually i don't know if it was called that then or whatever the flight recorder they recover stuff from the from the crash they go over meticulously and you can see things like i mean crash investigators can tell thing even in the 60s they could tell things down to the very last detail right 
Nothing. There's Maybe nothing they malfunctioned. <laughs> Presumably they can. No, they can. They can tell they can tell specifically what if a light turned off on the dash at impact, they can tell exactly how much yeah. fuel was in it at the time of impact. They can tell all kinds of things like that. No. There's just, nothing it, wrong it, with it the is, plane. Is, yeah. And it goes back to what that ghouly guy was saying. Because like I'm just again just re reiterating this accident report. There were no, this quote from the report, there were no reported discrepancies to any aids in navigation at the use of the time, or in use at the time of the accident. Communications. That's another quote. The aircraft was in radio contact with Chicago air traffic controllers with no reported discrepancies. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, there's this, it's just weird, man. Yeah. Now, okay, are we moving on to this last one? This last bizarre one? Are we doing? Yeah. Okay. This is yeah. even weirder. And I think so. It's it's it. Yeah. It, there's there was a lot of information. No, it was kind of a quick. There, mm-hmm. I mean, there isn't a lot of information because once again, there's there just there just isn't a lot of information. There's not a lot of evidence other than anecdotal evidence yeah. of the and and just the straight missing person. Obviously, yeah. Exactly. The person isn't there <laughs> do, anymore. Do you, <laughs> do, do you want to take this one? Oh, excuse me. Um. Well, yeah, we can. Yeah, we will tag team. We're gonna, we're gonna do it together. Tag team it. Yeah. Is it's it me? Like, oh my god! What? Holy Christ! You just had an epiphany. Jeepers, the jeepers. look on Amber's face, everybody, was just Whoa. like extreme. I just, no, I just went to read the date out, and it's another twenty-three. <gasps> oh my gosh! It is. Oh, Wait a second so here. Weird. This is so. Wait weird. a second. Is it actually? This is so weird. That's three then. So the, the one we just covered was August to 16th, so it's not. <laughs> but this is bizarre. So April 23rd, 1973. That's three then. That's weird, man. Three out of four? Ain't bad. <laughs> so don't fly on the 23rd of a month. No, over no. the Great Lakes, obviously. So this was Robert Joy Jr. of Michigan. And he reported this was on the 23rd. I feel like we need to go watch the number 23 now. <laughs> I think we're going to have to after this. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, so he was flying with his father. They were flying tandem. So they had two um, fairly small planes, like, you know, like more like single yep. passenger type, whatever. Uh, he, he called it a lake amphibian plane that his father was flying in. And they were flying pretty much side by side. I think Robert was a little bit ahead. So they were kind of like at a diagonal because he says there was one point where he said, uh, he he looked behind and he, he didn't right, see his that's dad right. anymore. Right, that's right. He looked but behind him off his left yes. wing tip. Yep. So the way it went down was that they were flying over Lake Erie and there it was a sudden fog. A sudden fog. <laughs> and he had a visual of his father off the left wing of his plane before entering the fog. And then I, he got a mysterious transmission from his dad right before he disappeared, but he couldn't make it out. And that was yeah. pretty much... And then as soon... And it was just, it was just gone. Yeah, just, so... But you would think, okay, you would think you're in a little plane, you're flying that plane, it's not as if you're not in control of this thing. Yeah. You think you would maybe do a little dip, little maneuver to go circle around, maybe see if you can... Well, I, I mean... You know what I mean? Or, or, or you would circle, or you would be flying maybe, and you'd look, and you'd see the plane crash, presumably, below you. Possibly. Yeah, you'd, I mean... Yeah, the, the the sudden fog, air quotes, mm-hmm. is the that's thing gonna, that's like... We're going to get into that in the theories. Yes, because these things happen where it's like, all of a sudden, you know, perfectly great day. Next thing you know, there's like, you know, 60 mile an hour headwinds that nobody else can feel except for like one plane. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 
but in this case with uh, with with Robert Joy, yeah. So fog comes up, loses loses sight of his of his dad's plane. They go through the fog, and the, the plane's gone. He can't see it. It's it's off it's off radar. He can't he can't pick it up. But yeah, it just there's there's just his, his, he he assumed that his dad crashed. Right? He assumed he was like, I can't find him. There's nothing here. He just assumed that he plummeted into the lake. Mm-hmm. They searched, couldn't find the plane. No plane. No plane. And no father. He never came back. Maybe he just ran away to Vegas or something. I don't know. <laughs> you know, you're like, just cruising with your son, and then you know what he just said? He just was like, you know, I'm only a, however many thou- tens of thousands of miles away from <laughs> from Vegas. <laughs> like, I'm just going to, I should have enough gas. I'm just going to bip over there and get her done. Why not, right? Why not? Why not? No, it was actually kind of interesting because this was a story that was um, touched on on the In Search Of, and um, it was weird seeing Robert Joy Jr. talk about his dad. I mean, it's funny because he's Robert Joy Jr., and then in the mm-hmm. doc, his dad went as Bob, <laughs> like Robert Bob. So, like, one's called Bob, the other's Robert, even though they both have the same name. Yeah. Anyway, it's kind of funny. <laughs> um, he, was, uh, he wasn't too bent. He wasn't emotional about it. Because uh, time had passed, obviously, mm-hmm. but he was um, bewildered because yeah. they were both. He was a less experienced pilot, but they were out there on a day where, if something was going to happen to his dad's plane in that circumstance, mm-hmm. it should have happened to him as well. That's a bizarre thing that, like, I'm going to touch on a second the theory section. But with this account, it it's similar to others in the sense that. Robert's flying ahead of his dad. He gets a distress call. Well, you, you, he doesn't know if it was a distress call. He no, got a he got garbled. a garbled transmission from his dad, yeah. which reminds me of the Felix Moncla, where there was a pilot that went searching that supposedly got a transmission 40 minutes after the disappearance that was from that plane. Mm-hmm. This isn't 40 minutes later, mind you, but it's still a just it's still a transmission that for no no apparent reason he can't interpret it. Mm-hmm. Can't hear it. Yeah. You can't in, you Even though can't they're right side by they're side. They're right there. Is and it then he of the com- fog? Woof. And then he goes through the fog and the plane's gone. Mm-hmm. Now, once again, I am not a plane guy. I'm not an I'm not a <laughs> mechanic and engineer. I'm nothing. I am I am I know nothing. Nothing. But I'm fairly certain that if even in 1973, these two planes they were checked out before they took off. Like for it, it would be like, what are the odds of a plane that is totally good to go, cleared for a flight, to just drop out of the sky from a malfunction? Like, what are the odds of that? It's better odds to win the lottery. Yeah, and some people might chalk it up to like, oh, these were private planes. Maybe they weren't maintained properly. But I, I don't even want to really suggest that myself. No, no. And the reason is that they're a part of clubs, and mm. those clubs have mechanics. Okay. So like people do their own work on their own planes, yeah. <clears throat> but these th- Robert Joy and, and you his have father that's, that's like seaworthy for yes, the air. Yes, air seaworthy, air worthy, air worthy. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Like you know what they're flight worthy, flight worthy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's gonna be some sort of, and it's funny too because I did try and check into this further, like from where we went off from the search of, and there's not a lot to really dig up on Robert Joy Jr. And I don't know if that's because it's a really common name or if because it was, it wasn't a very highly publicized case or anything like that's that. That's a super common name. I'm thinking like it is. It yeah. almost sounds like a made up name. 
But it isn't. Is. I mean, I mean it, <laughs> I'm like, I'm seriously like, questioning Insurgent right now. <laughs> yeah, like, we've got sources we think are legit. I mean, we do our homework. I mean, History Channel isn't always, well, you know, like, you gotta, you gotta sift through. You do. Right? You have to have but, a critical mind about everything. Of course. Including what we say on the show, right? Because we want you guys to be just as active about this as we are. And when yeah. we see a source, we do like to check it out further. And a lot of times, maybe you can't find any more information. So we just want to put it out there and be yeah. as transparent as possible. Absolutely, yeah. Totally. And, but it's not like we're going to ignore it because we can't find another, like, you know, a primary source or another more rep- reputable source or whatever. But we just, you know. I'm going to go out on a limb and just say definitively that he's definitely <laughs> a guy. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, this happened. Paid so <laughs> It's like, paid actor. Yeah. He's a real guy, though. <laughs> A real human being. <laughs> oh, dear. He was really there. He was there. On film. <laughs> on the lake. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. So that okay. kind of wraps it up. Like, we, we didn't want to cover... Well, we didn't want to go overboard. <laughs> like God, we did with so the many puns. <laughs> this is just infinite puns. God. Oh dear. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's bit. funny? We're getting it's, into the deep end. Oh my god, ever. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's funny. Well, you know we're having some Pino and it's a Saturday recording when it's like some pretty dark topics, but we're just like, I mean, it's a cash conversation. It's a Saturday night mystery. It's yep. uh, you know, That's great good, entertainment. I like that name, Saturday Night Mystery. It's like Saturday Night Dateline. NBC. <laughs> 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 Okay, so... Real-life mysteries. All right. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, theories. Mm. Mm. So, going back to part one, obviously, that was shipwrecks. Part two is aircraft disappearances and wrecks. Yeah. So, these theories are sort of encompassing both. Well, some of them are more, obviously... They're oriented one way or the other. Yeah. You want to kick it off? Well, um... I always put you on the spot there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, well, what do you want? What do you want from me? Here, like, okay, for me, I, I just, you got some funny, hilarious crackpot idea here that I'm not really gonna touch on at all. I'm just gonna <laughs> just keep scrolling past that one. <laughs> but we did, okay, we didn't, we did discuss sea waves, obviously, in the first episode. This is definitely a tangent on this part too, but. We did have some information on seizures, and yeah. I actually did come across a couple of really, well, not a couple, one helpful video from this professor, I can't remember what university he was part of, but he demonstrated how siege waves can form underneath the surface and how they can, it's almost like you were describing the analogy in the bathtub, right? Where you yeah. start to slosh get some, back yeah, and forth. Yeah, you get sloshing kinda. waves and then they just start to roll over and they right. can just get really, yeah. so that could explain potentially some of the shipwrecks. That isn't really what we want to like focus on too much for this part, right? No, or, no. But we did. We just want to mention that, I guess, right? Because it's in the notes. <laughs> it's in the notes. Hey, I think the Seish waves. I mean, the water activity on the water does play into the uh, plane crashes and disappearances and stuff like that. Because obviously, you're going into the lake. You're thinking, "Hey, it's a freshwater lake. You should be able to drag that thing and find a, a plane crash." But if it crashes and then obviously you're not searching for things right away necessarily and like there's things like sage waves on these lakes 
Oh shoot! I Things even, can get I washed away, know. right? It's like it can add oh. to the. Well, that's just it. If the sediment could sort of like get like tossed and then possibly added on, it's almost like a scoop of a shovel, and then it gets redeposited on top of the object. Holy! Possibly because there's areas there's areas of these lakes that are quite shallow. Yeah. Right? Like where ships need to know how they're navigating, otherwise they're going to run aground. So if a plane crashed in an area like that, that was a little more shallow, mm-hmm. and the weather conditions permitted for a stage wave, then that would explain why some of them like can't be the found. Like on the edge of Lake right? Michigan? Yeah. Like that. There you go. We yeah. just, yeah. Yeah. So what is your pet theory? Maybe I'll just put you on the spot then. Oh, man. On the spot. Okay. Yeah. I mean, well... <laughs> It's hard to have a pet theory for the Great Lakes Triangle in terms of plane disappearances just because each disappearance or crash is relatively unique. There's similarities uh, between certain ones crossing over, like the Moncla one and the Robert Joy Jr., where there's transmissions that come after disappearances, and it isn't just a straight-up, you were at 20,000 feet one second, and then you're at the bottom of Lake Michigan the next. Mm -hmm. I think... I lean towards that the Great Lakes is an area of ton of fresh water, and we discussed this with Brian and Angelo. Fresh water is a hot location for UFO, UFO sightings and phenomena. Mm-hmm. I think that the fresh water aspect might be the reason why they're around there, and the heavy air traffic and sea tra- shipping traffic mm-hmm. is just a unfortunate coincidence. And that accounts for the high level of disappearances and shipwrecks in the area. I think it. I think there is a UFO angle here. Yeah. I think there very well could be. I, I think there could be as well. I think that's very plausible. I have uh, my other crackpot idea. I'll give it at the end for fun. Oh, that's not your crackpot. What? <laughs> no, I got a. Cra- I got a crazier one. You do. Hey. I got an even crazier one. The guys at Graveyard Tales will be laughing at me for this one. <laughs> Well, okay, for me, I'm just going to go ahead and give my little pet theory. Well, not even a pet theory, but a lot of this stuff, especially when you get elements of fog, you get elements of sudden um, either no radio communication or a sudden blip in the radar where it disappears. And what that all sort of like brings to mind for me is the idea of electronic fog. Oh, yeah. Um, for people that aren't familiar with electronic fog, it is kind of the phenomenon that isn't why like it isn't widely documented but it is documented in extreme bizarre cases of say okay so i'm thinking specifically back to that one episode of astonishing legends where they were talking about flight uh 19 yeah and then they also got into later on i can't remember what the actual name of the episode was but they had someone on that had been flying over the Bermuda triangle and I think it was just called Electronic Fog, an yeah. interview with so-and-so. I can't remember the name of the person. But they were talking about, like, the, the guy that they interviewed was talking about how essentially he experienced this weird, um, bizarre interference with all of his electronic devices as he was flying over the Bermuda Triangle towards Miami. Right. And he had done this so many times before. This was routine for him. He knew exactly how long this flight takes him. And he actually experienced... Um, time travel or like a loss of time where he at one point he was seeing all these crazy visuals where he could see almost like a warping tunnel around him of this like fog clouds i don't know yeah and he it seemed alive he described it yes it seemed cognizant and it was it was wrapped around him is how he described it It was it was a part of him in the plane it wasn't something that he could avoid and swerve out of or get out of and it came on really suddenly and so for me that 
just brought to mind, like, when we were reading over these cases, I was like, oh my goodness, like, you know, like, the, just the bizarre circumstances, like, this could maybe be caused by this, and I, I'm, you know, I, it could, like, in my theoretical mind, if it's messing with electronic devices on some, on some planes, it could also mess theoretically with things like the altimeter, which would give false readings of the altitude, potentially, but I don't know, I don't know enough to actually say conclusively whether or not that particular instance with flight 389 was, um, the ground control saying their altimeter reading to the plane versus yeah. the pilot reading his alternative yeah. reading to yeah. the ground. Yeah. So for me, there is a bit of ambiguity in that sense. For sure. But I don't know. I think electronic fog maybe could be involved, and that is paranormal, and it has been um, documented in conjunction with UFO sightings it and has. things like that. So that's my little pet. I like that one a lot, and I think it makes sense. The the thing about electronic fog is, I mean, yeah, it is paranormal because nobody really knows what exactly it is or what conditions allow for it, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I... Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's the other aspect that uh, Gourlay talked about in his book, too, uh, about the agonic line. And it makes me, electronic fog, uh, electronic fog makes me uh, think of the agonic line because I wonder if there's any correlation between the two. The agonic line is a, a line on the Earth, a geomagnetic line on the Earth, that bit where basically magnetic north and true north are the same direction. Really? Um Huh. That doesn't normally they're opposite. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, in the in the words of of Leland J. Leland Gorley, how this would be correlated to a, a, a an accident, an airline accident, or a shipping accident has never been conclusively determined. It's one of those things where it just happens to be a common a commonality. This agonic line happens to run not only through the Great Lakes Triangle but into the Bermuda Triangle. Interesting. So there are so many dis- disappearances and wrecks that happen along or near the Sagonic line that it's almost too frequent to discount as coincidence. Hmm. But at the same time, it can't be outright, you know, it, it, there's, 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 no, there's nothing conclusive about it either. You know, and it's the same with the geomagnetic grid in general, which we talked about with uh, Rockgate and the yeah. idea of secret levitation and things like that. You know, you can, it's pseudoscience. Mm-hmm. There's, it's a, there's, there's a large element of pseudoscience to it. But at the same time, I mean, it is a thing. And whether or not that plays a part, of, part in these accidents or not, I don't know. That's really interesting. I, I yeah, because we, we hear that all the time when we're, diving into all sorts of things like it happened to come across that with uh rock gate that's right with yeah. Royal castle yeah. and that type of thing and of course again a lot of like the more like ancient megalithic structures things like that and where you look into that a lot of people will draw conclusions based on that sort of theory i i i, I do i i'm still so curious about magnets <laughs> I know. I want right? to know more. I know, right? I, I, Chris explained a lot to us. Well, not physicist Chris, but Chris from the Mad Scientist. Yeah, Chris podcast. Cogswell. Yes, Chris Cogswell. But he, yeah, no, it's just 
It's still an enigma to figure. I know, right? That's well, true. we are not scientists. That's why we... Uh, That's why we do this. Exactly. <laughs> no. Now, an- there's another sort of theory... Well, theory-ish that's mm-hmm. sort of adjacent to the electronic fog. Mm-hmm. And the reason I pulled this one up, even though I don't really think it has a ton of credibility necessarily... But the reason I thought it was interesting and pulled it up is because it was an, actually a term coined by Ivan T. Sanderson. Really? And a lot of people will recognize that name because he is a paranormal researcher and a cryptozoologist who has done, I mean, he's worked with uh, Lauren Coleman and stuff like, and he's he's written tons of articles and tons of books, like mm. he, from cryptid creatures to all kinds of different stuff. But he coined a term, the vile vortex. So it's basically a vortex theory. It is basically his idea that there are locations all around the Earth, specifically 12 purported geographic locations, arranged in a pattern that would allow for these vortexes to form. And what I mean by vortexes is essentially just, I mean, I'm not a scientist again, but it's basically like it's just these points where I guess where like matter is affected so differently like the it can be point in the center yes so the epicenter. the epicenter and yeah he says that five are on the same latitude to the north um but, 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 but basically his idea is just that there's these points that match up with certain a- aspects of the geomagnetic grid where vortexes can form is this interdimensional vortices it, you mean vortices mm-hmm. is does this mean does this mean that Bob, you know, that that Robert Joy's dad flew into another dimension through a yeah. a vortex or a portal, so to speak? Does yeah. this, you know, because th- I think the evidence to suggest that that might be possible is the transmission. They're right next to each other. You get a radio transmission mm-hmm. that's all not good. But that doesn't make any sense because no. the equipment's fine. <laughs> Just another. So are you way transitioning over, this? and that's why it's. Sorry, sorry. Right. Yeah. Anyway, that's yeah. All, that's my point. <laughs> no, that's yeah. That's I don't know. Sorry. And I just wanted to just for people that are less familiar with the idea of vile vortices or the vile vortex, another way this has been frin or phrase, sorry, by other writers and stuff has been like the ley lines theory, that type of thing. Right. So and electromagnetic aberrations and stuff like that, and. Oh my gosh, this is on Wikipedia, but apparently this phenomenon was addressed by Plato in the book Anti-Gravity in the World Grid. Get out of town. Is that just like complete BS? Oh no. (laughs) That is totally BS. That's so funny. Guess who it actually was? Who? who? Uh, David Childress. So we're already familiar with David Childress. Yes, (laughs) But that's hilarious. That's a few thousand years off. Someone changed it to Plato. Which is why I can't trust Wikipedia. No, I know, right? <laughs> I know. So yeah. Funny. Totally. Yeah. Well, so that's that. that's another one. That is another one. There are so we've so okay so there's so there's the UFO so there's like extraterrestrial, ultra terrestrial, some sort of other beings that are messing with us. What if there's silver swimmers in the like Great Lakes? <sighs> well, oh I mean, is that? Yeah, 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 yeah. That could, you never know. I mean, it could be. It's not very deep. That's the only thing about it, that yeah. all five of the Great Lakes are not nearly as deep as Lake Baikal. So, mm. silver swimmers might be easier to find them. <laughs> I don't know. But... <laughs> Shoot my ass down. But... Well, that was a very half-baked idea. Indeed. But, mm. you know, 
sort of adjacent to that, though, with the idea of there being civilizations underwater, there was something interesting found in Lake oh, Michigan. Oh, yeah. It's worth mentioning. Uh-huh. It's sort of known as the Stonehenge of the Great Lakes. And uh, obviously people know who's, what Stonehenge is. And, you know, there's some that believe that Stonehenge is one of these locations that matches up with the magnetic grid or the, you know, some sort of a... a a grid on the earth where energy can be harnessed, right? Okay. But basically, people found... I can't remember who exactly it was. There was divers who found a... They actually just picked it up on, like, sonar first. They were, mm-hmm. like, they, they were like, oh, there's these weird, you know, large objects in a formation that seems peculiar. But it's not too... It wasn't too deep down. I think it's only maybe, like, 40 or 50 feet down. It's not even too crazy deep i don't think oh like it's at a it's at a location on the lake that's not like super populated so they didn't want a lot of people to know where it is but (laughs) basically they found a formation underwater that's very similar to stonehenge circular a circular formation with with uh rocks that have been placed very specifically and on one of them they there's sort of this is a this is a stretch but they say that there's like a engraving of a mastodon (laughs) <laughs> on the rock. I actually saw well, I saw the it's, clip of that and okay, they hyped it up so much. Really, and then yeah. and and on top of that, these people was it Monster Quest or was it? I think one? it was Monster Quest. I think it was, Quest. but I don't, <laughs> I don't want to say that conclusively, but that was one of the many documentaries that we can yep, watch on yep. doing research for this. But they really seriously um like hyper what's the word that I'm looking for? Like they hyper no, like I intensified the image. Oh, it like enhanced. Enhanced it, yes. Yeah. Where they basically added their own drawing of a mastodon on top, and then and then on top, and then they show that, and then you go back to like this dive scene where they're underwater, and then there's like it just looks like live. Like it's it just, just a like, rock. It with just some looks cracks like the natural. Exactly. It's just a and rock. And it's just a very coincidental mastodon yes. shape bunch it of looks like a, it looks like a mastodon it's not as guess. if there's like paint on it or like you know what i mean right. like or, or or carved into it like it's just the freaking natural looking but crack. the reason that this is sort of significant as something to reference for this episode is the idea that there was a pre-neolithic peoples that discovered that this location now underneath the waters of lake michigan was some sort of source of energy and that's why they built a stonehenge-esque place there and that ties into the geomagnetic grid theory and why planes drop out of the sky no i don't think so i don't know i find (laughs) it hard to buy i just thought it was kind of interesting that they found this and were like let's look into the stonehenge of lake michigan it's like yeah the regular stonehenge that's above ground is is for crazy people, for dru- for modern day druids that go there and still, you know, mm-hmm. I- I'm well, they for- practice their summer equinoxes and solstices, and right? Whatever, yeah, that type of thing. And I believe that there's certain places that have energies that can be harnessed, no doubt. And I believe the Great Lakes is probably one of those places. But just because you find something that resembles Stonehenge under the water doesn't. I don't think that correlates to the disappearances of aircraft. It's and a stretch, energy. but yeah, no. I mean, it could. It's you okay, can. So make this it. is Lake Michigan too. So yeah. Lake Michigan is kind of an epicenter for a lot of this. Like, well, it has its own little triangle. Yeah. It's a triangle within the triangle. So where does the Stonehenge rest? It's in, in the, the south end. So oh. it's it's in the area. It's it's down there. It's wait a second. So that would have been right near Flight three eighty nine. Uh oh. Things are getting interesting. 
interesting. <laughs> we have to do a part three. Oh, <laughs> no, no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but if you guys do have any additional information or things that you would like to add, yeah, um, which is the exact same <clears throat> as additional information. <laughs> okay, we will include it and we will give updates if anyone has anything else to say on right. this. Yeah. I want to give my, should I give my, my crazy, Please. I literally wrote this in the notes as crazy side note, crackpot idea, but it's fun. Exactly. That's, That's why I, I kept, I kept scrolling. I was <laughs> like, okay, I'm just going to get past that now, one. <laughs> you're probably right. Like most of my ideas so far have been probably, you could categorize them as crackpot. I mean, most They're of fun. My, I mean, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Oh, I guess you did say that at the end. You're like, but it's fun. Yeah, <laughs> two, comma. But two it's... exclamation marks. Oh, you think you should add an extra actual exclamation mark there, right? Greg? Yeah, oh, so. it's not necessary. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. Greg. Now, this is my crazy crackpot idea. I believe that, okay, I lean towards the UFO idea of things for some of, you know, for the Felix Moncla disappearance and, a, you know, a couple others. Mm-hmm. But... I think that the idea of portals is interesting. Mm-hmm. So where Robert Joy's dad just outright disappeared. Yeah. Possibly Felix Moncla, even though there's Eileen UFO on that one, where, like, again, there's two blips on radar, down to one, plane's gone. They thought it was RCAF. They say no. What was it? Nothing there. Did he just, was he abducted by UFO, or did he just fly into another dimension? Was he just in the wrong place at the wrong time on the Great Lakes? Now, this is where my crazy crack part theory comes in. <laughs> if, as if that wasn't crazy enough, right? But the Great Lakes is obviously East Coast. And this is in the area where... Okay, now I'm crossing over so many different things. I think people are going to... I hope... Please don't stop listening to the show because of this crazy idea. <laughs> Grave, <laughs> Graveyard Tales is going to laugh at me because they had an episode recently about the Wendigo. Ooh, the Wendigo. Now, I'm tying in the idea that planes and ships possibly disappear through portals to the idea of the Wendigo. The Great Lakes is an area where the Wendigo is very present in indigenous mythology, all down through the East Coast, uh-huh. in, with uh, the Iroquois, Algonquin-speaking peoples, all down Chippewa, all through the East Coast. If you believe that the Wendigo is an actual physical creature, not a human being that just eats humans, that, yeah. that's a cannibal, it would have to come from another dimension. So... If planes can go disappear into a portal, maybe things can also come out of that portal. Mm. And it made me think of Skinwalker Ranch, where stuff disappears, but then also when researchers were there, they would see portal-like things open up and things enter and exit them. There was that one instance that we read in the account from Skywalker Ranch where it was night vision and then the the light, the halo of light opened up and then a dark Bigfoot-esque like creature came out of it. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm not saying that they're correlated. I'm not saying that the Wendigo has anything to do with a plane crash. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying that obviously this is an area where things can come and go, can leave, can disappear and possibly appear where they shouldn't be. And maybe that's the Wendigo. Maybe that's an actual creature. It's almost like a Stranger Things kind of a deal Ooh, I'm talking about creepy. here. Okay, wait. And a lot of the descriptions of Wendigo do kind of roughly correspond with witness accounts from the Skinwalker Ranch area. And especially like the, oh my gosh, what was it? On the highways, there was like, I don't know, am I thinking of the right case where it was like the the, the body, the top 
the top half was human-esque, but the bottom half was, like, that of a goat or something. Or, like, they had, yes. like... Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. They had, yeah. They had like, like the, the weird haunches, like, almost like a... Terrifying. But the Wendigo is a bit different, though. Like, I don't think you can equate the Skinwalker with the Wendigo. No, not the... No, not the Skinwalker. Um, but just but the, the idea of... But the, of, but the portal yeah. on Skinwalker Ranch and the idea that that these things might not be of this world. Mm-hmm. And if there's an area where they can come and go... It might match up with the Great Lakes because there are our own ships and planes that come and go. Sometimes they don't come back. <laughs> they go out and they're gone. And if it's out on the ocean, it makes more sense. Yeah. So the fact that the Wendigo is a is a very, very, very uh, uh, present uh, folklore in the east on the east coast around the Great Lakes. I think that's an interesting <laughs> correlation, possibly to All be right. made. Well, hopefully, Gregor gets us and. Tell us what they're No, they're just going to Matt, yeah, Adam and Matt, they're just going to be laughing at me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, is I that wrapping up for theories? I think that's kind of wrapping up. It kind of does. So we did cover the... I'm leaning, yeah. I'm leaning your way, though. I'm leaning, I, honestly, after this, and after I just gave my craziness, I, I think I'm leaning your electronic fog. Well, I don't even know if I'm really leaning... Like, I do like that idea. I don't know if that really encompasses everything that we discussed, though. That's... Well, it's that's just one difficult, aspect. That's the difficult thing uh, about well, it. Well, and it, it is more relevant in regards to planes. Right. And I'm not saying that electronic fog-type phenomena couldn't happen to ships, especially, like, in the case of, like, say, like, the cam loops or whatever. Like, you know, there's, there's sudden... Or what's the one from the 1970s again? That was the, the Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald. Like where there's no, I don't know, like there was radio communication. I feel like that, again, has a lot more to do with the elements of water and things like that. So, well, but, but, but not necessarily, though, because even the Fitzgerald, they had communication right up to the last second. The first, mate, the first mate's that's, on radio saying everything's fine. Everything's fine. So that's just a, Yet the, that's just a weird anomalous perception, maybe. So... But electronic fog can do that, possibly. Yeah. Well, but it can mess with time, so why it can't mess maybe potentially with other factors of your perception of reality? I guess so. And, and that's something I should have mentioned earlier with the first mate of the Fitzgerald, because that's very similar to, like, the you know, the 389. You're checking your altimeter. You're on the, you're on the radio. Yep, we're checking our altimeter. Just yeah. I mean, Something's a little weird. It's not quite right. Psh, you're in the water. Yeah. Fitzgerald. Yeah, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Yet the boat had been filling up with water for three hours before yeah. they went under and nobody even knew. You know, I'm just having a thought now, like, with that circumstance, with that plane crash where everyone perished. And it's almost, I don't want to say it's a, I, I'm going to say this. It's almost a blessing that they didn't know that they were literally about to die like if you think about it because like you see so many like even scenes from movies right or whatever or, or stories from people where it's like there was so much like you know um uh, what's it called turbulence, turbulence and, like, and the like you know like the power went out and it was we were going down we were going yeah. down like or even that one instance with the the pilot this was in re- recent years where he ended up i think he locked himself in the pilot's yeah. cabin and, and he flew, flew, into, he flew a into a mountain or whatever mountain, that was in Germ- like a german pilot yeah 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 so it's like those people probably knew that they were gone, like you know, even before it happened. But these yeah. people, in like they maybe weren't. So that's one slight blessing. <laughs> but obviously, like that's such a tragedy. Like, yeah, you can't yeah. really say it's a blessing because it's like, why did it happen in the first place? And that's just it. There's we no... we do not know. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the researchers had no explanation. And that basically leaves us here. And like we have our theories, but. At the end of the day, the Great Lakes Triangle is 
it's it's become it's less known, obviously, and mm-hmm. that's why we chose to talk about it for two episodes. Yeah, but I, you know, there's been less instances in years, recent years. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't take away from uh, the sheer number that have happened over the last several hundred years, from shipwrecks to plane crashes. It's more more distress calls per square mile than any other place on Earth, mm-hmm. which is absolutely bizarre i mean nobody on nobody would if i'm sitting at a coffee shop in bc and someone comes up to me and says what do you think is the most dangerous body water in canada i'm gonna think like atlantic ocean pacific ocean it's not in canada but it's like either end right i'm not yeah. gonna think like one of the great lakes that crosses the border from u.s to canada like right like if you don't or maybe know even it, like maybe um the northern or, or uh, ocean, yeah yeah, yeah like absolutely or, or the, the or, or in the arctic or whatever ice. absolutely mm-hmm. but it's just one of those things I want people to know about this one because I've asked so many people when we were researching it and we we're like, oh, Great Lakes Triangle. No, what? what? <laughs> What's that? Yeah. But it's really cool to have this kind of in our backyard, so to speak, even though we're out on the West Coast. <laughs> um, it's just really fascinating. Really yeah. fascinating. And we'll probably do a follow-up when we, uh, when we visit the East Coast. Maybe you can drag Brian and Angela out for, a boat, for a boat trip. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, um, well, uh, we have a few uh, announcements. Oh yeah, we we have some thank yous. Yes, I want to say thanks to Shannon uh, for first of all for her five star review on Facebook, and also for the potential lead on stagging our own copy of the Great Lakes Triangle. Yes, she yeah she sent us an awesome message. She's <laughs> like, oh, I didn't know this was that uh, valuable. I got it for fifty cents at a yard <laughs> sale. I was like, what? Wait, <laughs> we so honest. Like, if she managed to track down another uh, copy, I would totally compensate her any sort of expenses or whatever. Oh my gosh, like, <laughs> absolutely, and then be, some. Like, we'd. Right? Right? Yeah, we'll, some swag. We'll, we'll work out some serious swag yeah. for sure. Um, as well, we did want to give big hugs to Ember and Quinn from Fiercely Altered Perspective for their yes. glowing review on Thank iTunes. Thank you, you guys. Really made my day. And earlier. happy birthday to Quinn. Yeah. Belated birthday, I think, now. But uh, Well, er, was it? I'm not sure. I By the time this comes out, it'll be blue. Oh, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the time recording, maybe not, but who knows. And we have one other big announcement. Yes, we do. This is super exciting. So we are very, very excited and very, very proud to announce that we are now members of the Podfix Network family. Yeah. So uh, Podfix is an awesome, awesome network with some indie shows um, where, I mean, all different genres. We oh, still got to, uh, we, we got to catch up. Also, we gotta... like pop culture, film, yeah. gaming, uh, so many awesome. in between. Just really cool stuff. So yeah. we're going to, we're really excited to bring a paranormal angle to the network. Exactly. And uh, so stay tuned for some collaborations with some of the shows on Podfix and make sure you go and and check them out. Yes. Uh, ch- check out Podfix. Check out their shows, so uh, including us now, which is just Yay. I am. I'm we'll ecstatic. have a link to everything. I'm going to update our web page so it's all up there. Yes, and you guys can go check it out. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think that pretty much wraps up. There. Yeah, it does. Once again, thank you so much for listening, and uh, we will be back next week for episode 14. Indeed. Stay tuned.
This was a podcast from the Podfix Network. You can check out more shows like it at podfixnetwork.com.